keep that passage uh, open in front of you. Um, just one other quick announcement, a quick reminder really. On Thursday evening, we're having a, our Redeemer Extra event. I've uh, mentioned this a few times now, thinking about same-sex attraction um, and Christianity. And just to reiterate, the purpose of the event is to understand the Bible's teaching on these things, to have a clarity about what God's will and purpose is for us in, in our relationships. But there is a, is also a pastoral nature to it. Um, so, so for those who are experiencing that in their own life, and for those who just have questions, then um, that there is, we're going to take some time to think through uh, how to help. So please do come. Um, if you think it's appropriate to invite any, someone else along, then you're welcome to do that. Um, but as I said, we're not really kind of throwing open the gates and we're not advertising it massively wide. Um, but, but we would love to have you there, so please do that. That's Thursday, 7.30, and we're hosting it at the, uh, the Baptist Church in town. Um, so we'll send out more details of where to park and those kind of things, but that's where you'll find it. Let's pray as we come to God's word together. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this is what is an incredible passage. Um, uh, in, in a sense, the curtain is pulled back and we see something of the inner workings of you. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as the Lord Jesus prays. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that what we see here would so excite our hearts, so fill them with the greatness of your glory and your goodness, that it will be our joy to love and serve you all our days. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, how, um, how do you prepare for the worst? If you're a pessimist, I think I am slightly pessimistic, then, then that's kind of what you do. You think about the worst. Uh, and it's difficult, isn't it? Because sometimes you don't even know what the worst is. Even if you did know what the worst was, even if you were able to be shown this is what's going to happen in the next five years, that, that, that would be hard to prepare for, wouldn't it? Whether it's tragedy or, or sickness or, or, or death or whatever. But very often we just don't know what the worst is. So how do you prepare yourselves for that? Well, look, Jesus is about to go into the final moments of his life after this chapter, uh, into chapter 18 onwards. It, it goes downhill for Jesus very, very quickly. He'll be arrested and tortured, put up on a cross. It will be the worst, kind of the, 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 the worst human experience of suffering that has ever happened in the history of the world. Jesus is about to face his worst. And, and what do you do? How do you cope? What will give you courage to face the worst that could happen to you? Well, I think Jesus gives us something of a model here. What we're going to see, three things. How do you cope? Well, you look up, you glorify God, and you enjoy him forever. That's how you cope with the worst. Let's have a look at those things in turn. First of all, we, we look up. Listen to what Jesus says in chapter 17, verse 1. After Jesus said this, remember he's been talking to his disciples uh, the last three chapters, explained to them that he's going and what life's going to be like, but how they can have courage. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and he prayed. Now, it's very easy, isn't it, just to kind of skip over those bits to get into the prayer and think, well, there's nothing really to see here. He looked towards heaven and he prayed. Well, what did he pray? That's what we're interested in. But I think there's something quite special here. I just said, um, Jesus has been talking to his disciples. You know the very last thing he said to his disciples before chapter 17? At the end of chapter 16, he said, In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. He says, have courage, be of good cheer. 
And what's the very next thing he does? He shows us one way to find that courage, to find peace in a troubling world. You look up. Jesus looked toward heaven. It's interesting, isn't it? What's our instinct when we pray? We put our heads in our hands. We we close our eyes. We, We look down if we have our eyes open. Now, I'm not saying we need to start changing the way we pray, but there is something significant in this, something powerful. There's a way in which the eyes can train the heart. Jesus looked up toward heaven. Jesus didn't look down as if God were below us. He he doesn't look around as if God were level with us. He looks up because God is above us. Two of my favorite psalms start this way. They'll be on the screen. Psalm 121. I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Psalm 123. To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. And other psalms pick it up. Let me just share a couple of others. Psalm 148. But my eyes are fixed on you, sovereign Lord. In you I take refuge. Or Psalm 25, verse 15. My eyes are ever on the Lord. For only he will release my feet from the snare. Jesus looked up toward heaven. Jesus looked to the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He looked to the one who is enthroned in the heavens. He fixed his eyes upon the Father. Jesus has just said to his disciples, in this world you will face trouble. And and he's about to prove that. He's about to face the worst kind of trouble that any human has ever faced in this world. The earth is about to give way for Jesus. The storm waters of of human hatred and divine judgment are about to engulf him. The mountains of God's justice are about to tumble on top of him. In this world, you will have trouble. Didn't Jesus know that? How do you find courage? You look up, you look towards heaven, and you see the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth, enthroned above all things, and you find courage. There is someone bigger than me. There is someone bigger than this. There is someone greater than all that Satan and suffering and death could throw at me, and looking up and seeing the Lord enthroned grows hope in your heart. Whatever trouble you are facing, don't let it overwhelm you. Don't be driven to fear. Look up and see the Lord enthroned in heaven. Your ever-present help, your rock and your refuge. Viktor Frankl was a survivor of the Nazi concentration camps. He was also a psychologist. And so during his time there, he studied people. And while he was in the camps, he noticed all sorts of things. He made these incredible observations about how people coped with trauma and evil and the horror of life in the camps. And he wrote this book called uh, A Man's Search for Meaning. It's an amazing read. But one thing he points to is having a connection with someone outside of the camp. 
He says that those who had a picture of some loved one that they could look at, someone who was not in the camp, they'd look at that picture and it would give them hope. And they were more likely to survive the worst of the suffering. So struck by this, the power of setting your mind on a loved one, the power to enable you to endure untold suffering, that it made Frankel think of God, and he wrote, and it's on the screen, for the first time in my life, I was able to understand the meaning of the words. The angels are lost in perpetual contemplation of infinite glory, even in the place of suffering. What does he mean? He means that when you can see God and set your eyes upon him, that even the worst of suffering does not overcome you. That's what we're doing when we look up. We are contemplating the God of infinite glory and majesty and power and goodness, and it is that contemplation that helps us to endure the worst of suffering. How do we face the worst? Well, we start by looking up. But of course, Jesus doesn't just look up, does he? He prays. And let's see what it is that he prays. Well, first, he prays that God would be glorified. That's our second point. Look up, glorify God. Now, John 17 is is the longest prayer that we have of Jesus. In fact, we don't have many prayers of Jesus. And this is the longest one we have, and it splits into three sections. We're going to look at it over three uh, sermons. And in 1 to 5, that's where we are this morning, he prays for himself. In 6 to 19, he prays for his disciples, the, uh, the original 12, now down to 11 because Judas is gone. He prays for them. And then in 20 to 26, he prays for us. He prays for the future disciples. Now, in the section we're focusing on 1 to 5, Jesus really only asks for one thing. And it's there in verse 1, and you see it in verse 5 as well. He says, verse 1, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son. And you see it in verse 5, and now, Father, glorify me. The first thing Jesus prays for, Father, glorify me. To to glorify someone is to honour them. It is to make a big deal of them, to hold hold them up and say, look how amazing this person is. What is Jesus praying? Father, may the world see who I truly am. May my character and nature be displayed so that the world might honour me and worship me. That's Jesus' first prayer. Father, glorify me. And I wonder, do we, do we struggle with that a little bit? Now, here's the longest prayer we have from Jesus, and his priority in this prayer is glorify me. Now, Jesus, what about, what about climate change? What about cancer? What about COVID? What about conflict? What about injustice and debt and racism? What about abortion? I guess what we're really saying is, Jesus, what about us? We think the priority of Jesus' prayer should be us, humanity, the the human condition, the brokenness of our hearts, the brokenness of this world. And to be fair, Jesus will be praying for us. But that isn't where he starts. Why? Because we are not the center of this universe. At the heart of the universe is not me and it's not you and it's not even humanity in general, it is God. 
God the Father delighting in God the Son and God the Son delighting in God the Father through the Holy Spirit. Look at the rest of verse 1. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. The Father delights to honour his Son, to glorify his Son. The Father wants the world to see the Son as he truly is. His power, his goodness, his wisdom, his compassion, his justice, his obedience, his mercy and so on. And it is the Son's delight to honour the Father, to glorify the Father. He wants the world to see who the Father truly is. Why create the world? Why allow the fool and sin to enter into the world? Why put stars in space and fish in the seas for, for our enjoyment and pleasure? Well, yes, but it's so much more than that so that God might be glorified. The Father glorifying the Son and the Son glorifying the Father. You see, everything that is and that will be and has been comes back to this relationship. This relationship, the Father and the Son in the Spirit, is like the Son at the heart of our solar system. It's what gives light and life to everything. Jesus said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify the Son, that your Son may glorify you. Now, that does not mean we are insignificant in all of this. No, that, that couldn't be further from the truth, because what's so interesting is where do we see the Son most glorified? Where do we see the Father most glorified? Is it in some great display of power or some great victory parade with people falling on their knees before him? No, it is at the moment of greatest humiliation. The Son and Father are most glorified, most revealed when Jesus saves the world through the cross. Listen to what Jesus says in verse 1. My hour has come. Glorify your son. And if you've been with us, then you will know that the hour in John's gospel is always talking about the cross, the death of Jesus. It is there that you will see Jesus glorified as he dies for his enemies. There you will see the extent of Jesus' love. It is at the cross that Jesus is glorified because there you see the compassion of Jesus as he saves those who cannot save themselves. It's there that you see the power of Jesus as he gains victory over Satan even in his own death. It is there that you see the kindness of Jesus as he cries out on the cross on behalf of those who are killing him, Father forgive them. Where do you see the Son most glorified? It is at the cross, saving us. And it's the same for the Father. Look at verse 4. Jesus says, I have brought your glory on earth, sorry, I've brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. The Father is glorified as the Son completes the work that the Father gave him to do. And what is that work? It is the work of bringing salvation and life to all who believe. 
It's on the cross in chapter 19 where Jesus uses the same word as complete here. He says as he gives up his final breath, it is finished. It is complete. It is as he dies that he completes the work of the Father. It's it's there again in verse 2. Look what the Father wants. For you granted the Son authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. What is the Father's work for the Son? It is to give eternal life to all who believe. And, And so what is the Father like? Who is the Father? Where do you see the Father most glorified? Well, you look at Jesus saving the world. And that is where you see Not only the Son glorified, but the Father as well. You see a God who is gracious and patient and compassionate and kind and loving. And so you have the cross as the moment of greatest glorification for both the Father and the Son. So as Jesus prays, he reveals the priority of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it is this, that the world would see his glory, that the world would truly see his greatness and goodness. Because the universe isn't first and foremost about us. It is about God. Salvation isn't even first and foremost about us. It is about God. And we're not insignificant because God has chosen to glorify himself through Jesus saving the world on the cross, saving us. But we need to think, what does that mean? How do we apply this? What do we do with this? Well, this prayer of Jesus, this priority of Jesus, well, it must shape our prayers and our priority. You you know, there there are only two real prayers of any length that Jesus prays in the New Testament, and, and they both start in the same way. That must be significant. So the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6, how does it start? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. May you be glorified. And here in John, glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. What should we pray for first and foremost? What should we ask for first and foremost? That God be glorified. That Jesus' greatness and goodness and kindness and worth would be more and more displayed in my life and the life of this church. Whatever the worst is, you prepare for it by praying this prayer. Lord, may you be glorified. And we've got to remember as well that the moment when Jesus' glory was most clearly seen in history was the moment of his greatest suffering. My deepest hope is that God would glorify Jesus in my life in in happy ways, you know? Helping me to see more of his beauty in the world as I I look outside or giving me a deeper sense of his grace and his love and his mercy as I gather and sing his praises. That that, that would be a wonderful way for him to be glorified in my life. But my hunch is that Jesus will be more glorified in my life and in your life when we walk through the hardest times. I notice that even now. When I spend time with Christians who are really struggling, really in the thick of some turmoil or sorrow or disaster, and they hold on to Christ throughout, it makes me realize that Jesus is so much greater than I thought. Great enough to give these people strength. Valuable enough that they won't let go of him even though they're losing everything else. 
I even notice it in my own life. So far, I've not faced the struggles and, and heartaches I know some of you have. But when things feel overwhelming, when those kind of inner doubts bubble up, it's then that Jesus appears bigger to me and greater. It's then that his love feels more precious. It's then that he shines more brightly in the darkness. The hour has come. Suffering is coming. Glorify your son so that your son may glorify you. How do you cope with the worst? Well, you look up and you pray, Lord, whatever happens, may you be glorified. And thirdly, you enjoy God forever. Have a look down at verse 2. For you granted him, that's the Son, authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you sent. I love these words of Jesus. Now, I've always loved them whenever I kind of first came across them, because for me, these words are, are like the big reveal. We've been watching this fairly awful series on, on BBC called Missions. Sorry if you're watching it and, and liking it. It's about a, a kind of a mission to Mars. And strange stuff starts happening. And the, the, the thing is, it's one of those series that keeps ratcheting up the mystery. The problems and the questions become even more complex. And you think, wow, they are never going to come up with a satisfying answer. You know it's going to be all a dream or something like that. You're waiting for the big reveal, but you know it won't be satisfying. But what about when the mystery isn't some sci-fi fantasy? What about when the mystery is life itself? And you know there are some, some big questions, some big complexities about life, all sorts of questions that we have going through our minds. The, the singer John Mayer wrote a song a few ba years back called uh, Why Georgia? And he's reflecting on his life and the choices he's made, the direction he's going in, but he's filled with doubt and the chorus keeps coming back to one question. Am I living it right? Am I living it right? My jobs, my friendships, my politics, am I living it right? My values, my lifestyle choices, my hopes and my dreams, am I living it right? What is the right way to live life, to understand life with, with all its complexity? What is the big reveal that makes sense of all of this? In verse 3, Jesus gives us the answer. This is eternal life. This is life. That they know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ whom you sent. The big reveal, life is knowing God. Knowing God is, is like coming home. You begin to find your place in the world. Knowing God, this is an odd illustration, but, but go with it. Knowing God is, is like getting to the point in a jigsaw when you know you're going to complete it. Enough of the pieces are, are, are in place. You, you don't have the whole picture, but you can see enough. And you know that all the other bits are going to fit into place soon enough. Knowing God is life. is what makes sense of life. What, what does it mean to know God? Well, first it means acknowledging that God is God. This is life, Jesus says, that they know you, the only true God. Knowing God means giving up on all other gods. God is God, not money. God is God, not power, nor sex, nor my career, nor my marriage. God is God, not me. 
He is the only true God. And that is a humbling experience. It is a life-transforming experience to come before God and say, you are the only true God. Everything I have and everything I am, I lay before you. You get to judge whether I'm living it right. You decide what stays and what goes. You are the only true God. Knowing God means acknowledging that God is God. But it's more than that. It means relationship. It means enjoying him forever. Jesus says this is eternal life. It's not just life. It is eternal life. Knowing God forever. And that word eternal is about security. This life with God will never end. Nothing can snatch it from us. But that word eternal is also about necessity. It has to be eternal. The one true God and his son Jesus Christ is infinite. His love, his, his wisdom, his, his knowledge, his goodness, his truth. For, for us to know this God and his son Jesus Christ, it will take us eternity. Friendships and, and relationships tend to go through phases, don't they? There's the initial discovery phase. Oh, you're into that. Oh, you, you find that funny as well. You, you've traveled there. I've been there. You, know, you discover lots about the other person and it's all kind of surface level and it's all great. But then you hit that deeper stage. You enjoy shared experience. You have now a bit of history that you can look back on and, and laugh together about. You find out more about their past and their fears. They begin to shape you and you begin to shape them. And then you kind of plateau. It's not a bad plateau. You, you get into this kind of happy equilibrium and you just trundle along. But with the God of the universe, you never get to that plateau. The thrill and excitement of discovering more about God, it never ends. You enjoy him and his son forever. This is eternal life. That they know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ, his son. And maybe you think, look, I, I don't know. Does that really sound good? Doesn't it sound a little bit dull? Does this kind of sound like the best life we could ever have? Well, just as we close, notice something. This is the life that Jesus himself longed for. Listen to what he prays in verse 5. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Just stop and see what Jesus is saying there. Jesus looks back to eternity past and his existence in the presence of the Father, the glory he enjoyed before the world began. And his longing, his desire is to be glorified, raised up and drawn into the presence of the Father again. Do you see what that means? Before there was life on earth, before you or I or any other human existed, before the stars were set in space, there wasn't nothing there was this, the Father eternally enjoying the Son and the Son eternally enjoying the Father through the Spirit. A, a relationship, an existence that was so alive, so pulsating with joy and love and vitality and beauty that what came from it? The whole of the universe. And it's that relationship 
that Jesus is opening us up to. We think it'll be boring one day after another in the presence of God. But eternity with God and the Son couldn't be even less boring. Out of this relationship with the Father and the Son burst forth the stars in space. Out of this relationship came oceans teeming with creatures. Out of this relationship came human beings. Although we're fallen, we are still incredible. It won't be boring to spend eternity in the presence of the Father and Son. We will be lost in wonder, awe, and praise. Life in the presence of God is life so full of wonder and joy and splendor and goodness that it can produce a world like this. And so Jesus says, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. It's the best experience he had and is what he was looking forward to. Eternal life then is to know the one true God. It is the life we were made for And it is the life that Jesus, while on earth, longed for. So how do you face the worst of life? You don't even know what the worst of life is going to be. Well, you look up. You see God enthroned above all the earth. And you pray, may you be glorified. Whatever happens, may you be glorified. And even now, you begin to enjoy God and enjoy him forever. Moment quiet, then I'm going to pray.